Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. movie then a fan theory comes along that turns everything on its head if you like the 1980s there are some great movie fan theories out there some of them may seem crazy but they're just crazy enough to change the way you look at the movie that's what we're going to look at here today welcome to the everything 80s podcast or welcome if it's your first time thanks for coming on out i'm jamie i look back at all the best things of the 80s today will be a breakdown of 10 of the best fan theories for 1980s movies. So before we start that, if you haven't already, subscribe anywhere you find podcasts. I should be there. Here we go. So this sort of continues the theme of the last uh, week or so with movie-related topics. So in the last episode, I broke down the best summer for movies in the 80s, if you want to listen to that one. So I ranked them all, looked at what what ones stood out in my mind. It, that's a good one if you want to check that back. So some of these theories you may have heard of, and some may be brand new. The great thing about movies is we can all interpret them in our own way. Some of these theories will never die, like The Shining. Is it Stanley Kubrick's confession that he faked the moon landing? And then some sort of pop up, and then they're never seen again. So I'll go in no particular order here, but we'll start with the first one, and that's with Indiana Jones, and specifically Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And the fan theory goes that Indiana could have prevented World War II. If you haven't seen this movie in a while... It's pretty astounding to watch, considering the fact it came out all the way back in 1981. Some of the special effects obviously don't totally hold up, but they're not bad considering. The fan theory here, though, goes that Indiana knew that the Ark would kill anyone who opened it, and if they looked at it. He was just one of a handful of people who witnessed the true power of the Ark, But since he knew they were trying to get it to Hitler, why didn't he allow it instead of having it stored away forever? He was aware that this was a way to take out all the Nazis and Hitler, but he didn't go for it. So he inadvertently could have prevented World War II. 
So why didn't he? That's the big question. Some just argue that he didn't realize how, you know, what World War II would evolve to and everything like that. But he was getting sort of a behind-the-scenes look at what was really um, potential here. So, you know, this is the theory he could have stopped the whole thing. Another theory sort of carries on into the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and it's related with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And that is in the scene where he survives the atomic test site because he's locked in a refrigerator. And the idea is that because he drank from the Holy Grail, this protected him and kept him alive during that uh, nuclear explosion. The one reason they did use this scene as well is one of the early drafts of Back to the Future, they were trying to decide how Marty was going to get around before they came up with the DeLorean or how he was going to time travel, what the time machine would look like. One of the ideas was it would be potentially a fridge that you would go in, you would set the coordinates, and then boom, it would transport you. But then they were worried that kids would start locking themselves in fridges and everything like that. So then they eventually changed it to a car. But this is seen as a way to sort of pay tribute to that original premise of Back to the Future that Indiana would lock himself um, into the fridge. And then the idea is that the old fridges back then from the 50s and whatever were a little more um, lined with lead or something that could protect from the blast. But the theory, I like the theory that the Holy Grail is what actually protected him. Okay, the next fan theory speaking back to the future will be related to that and a few different ones here. So these, you know, most fan theories for movies get a little dark and involve death of some sort. So just as a heads up, that's some of the discussion here. So the one big theory with back to the future that was that Doc Brown was trying to take his own life. And as a kid, I remember wondering why in the world Doc had the DeLorean pointed at him and Marty during the first test run. If he didn't know what was going to happen, why would they possibly risk that? Of all places to stand, why there? The theory regarding this is that Doc Brown had a death wish. He had sunk more than 30 years into studying inventions and things that just did not work out, as well as devoting a ton of time to time travel. If this experiment failed, he didn't want to be around anymore. If it did work, then great. But if not, then we would have our answer right there. I have a few different theories about Back to the Future as well. And one theory I have is that Doc is actually Marty's great uncle. And this would explain why he was so connected to a high school student. In the movies, we meet Lorraine's parents, but we never see George's. I think the idea is that Doc is actually related to the McFly family, but this was always kept a secret because he was the shame of the family. He was this failed crackpot inventor. This would explain why he had always been aware of Marty and was keeping tabs on him because he knew his home life wasn't great. And that was one of the reasons he invented the time machine, because he wanted to go back in time and help Marty fix his life. Doc figured... He was older and, you know, he had to give up on a lot of things, but there was still a lot of hope for Marty because he's this great uncle in the background that has been, always been watching. And that's why he knew so much and knew his home life wasn't great and wanted to help him switch that. I also think that Doc has a created a second time machine that he had hidden away from the first one uh, in case it failed or he knew about the Libyan threat, but that's a whole other one. 
There's a show I'm going to be doing soon, and it's not technically a fan theory, but there's the whole issue of how George and Lorraine would not recognize or connect their son to Marty from 1955. There are just too many circumstances that would make it impossible for them not to know their son is Calvin Klein. And that's sort of connected with another theory that George knows that his son is Calvin Klein from 1955. He knows his son is a time traveler, but he has to keep going with it, sort of connecting in with Doc Brown being involved with the family and George having inkling. He knows that Marty has to go back in time if things are going to work out for the future. So that's why he has to sort of play along with the whole thing. It's interesting if you watch back the movies with this sort of new interpretation, it really changes it. Here's a few more. Here's another good one. Marty actually dies in Back to the Future 2. He was crushed to death by Biff in the tunnel when he's trying to escape from him. Doc knows this, and that's why they had to go back to the future. And then this is how he knew to drop that rope at the exact time in that exact spot because he had seen how the whole thing was going to take place, and that was him rescuing him. But then we get into the whole issue of Marty not actually being in the past 1955 until the original version of him was taken back there. This is where your head can get complicated and start to hurt like mine is right now. Interesting, though, in Back to the Future 2, there are actually four DeLoreans in Hill Valley at the exact same time in 1955. You've got, you know, the first one from the original movie that's happening. Then you have the other Doc and the other Marty that have taken that time machine and they've gone back to 1955. Then you have Biff from the future who stole the DeLorean and has taken it back to give the almanac to his younger self in 1955. Then you have the DeLorean that Doc has hidden in the underground cave back in 1885 that will exist there till they find it again. So kind of cool. There's four different ones. Okay, and one more kind of, it's sort of a fan theory, but just interesting is that the, the whole trilogy is this perfect mirror of itself. It has perfect symmetry. Um, and they call this, I forget how you pronounce it, it's like chiasmus or chiasmus. And it's a sort of ancient writing technique where something it starts, gets to a middle, and then reverses itself and goes back. And the easiest example of that is the Hickory Dickory Dock rhyme. So it's Hickory Dickory Dock, the mouse ran up the clock, the clock struck one, the mouse ran down, Hickory Dickory Dock. So the clock striking one is in the middle of it. It ends and starts with Hickory Dickory Dock and then the mouse going up and down. So you sort of see like it's like um, goes up to a point and then comes back to the same place. And that's how the whole trilogy works. If you think just the early start of the first movie, um, Marty gets blown back by the amplifier and then talks to Doc. At the end of the third movie, he gets blown away by the new time machine train coming in and then talking to Doc. And then the movies sort of perfectly symmetrically balance themselves. And in the, the second one is like two parts that mirror itself up to the point where Doc finds himself um, seeing his own grave, the movie sort of follows itself and then reverses backwards. And the whole trilogy does the same thing. It, it, you got to look a little deeper into this. It takes a while. There's a whole good um, Reddit thread if you want to look that up about this whole symmetrical thing. But it's something I'd never, ever heard of before. And now you're looking like, whoa, it actually perfectly mirrors itself. Okay, next fan theory is from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And it's uh, that Judge Doom is actually a cartoon possum. And 
Who Framed Roger Rabbit I've covered on this show before. If you want to go back and listen to that episode. Amazing, like a movie that could have only been made in the 1980s. The licensing and copyright issues would have would be impossible to deal with today. The fact that all these studios lent their characters to another studio for a singular movie is astounding. And you can really chalk this all up to the influence of Steven Spielberg. So in the movie, we find out, spoiler alert, that Judge Doom, Christopher Lloyd, as we're connecting this to Back to the Future, he turns out to be a tune. But was he a specific tune? We know he's one, but which in particular? The movie never lets us know. But there may be some hints in the movie that he's actually a cartoon possum called Pistol Packin' Possum. You have to look carefully, but there's Easter eggs regarding this contained throughout the movie. During that one big interrogation scene... We see a poster of that possum, the pistol pack and possum. Like Judge Doom, this possum has red eyes. He also has a very long gun, again, similar to what Doom uses when he shoots RK Maroon. And if you, if you do a Google image search, you can see this um, possum. You have to look close for it, but it seems like the movie's actually revealing his true identity, especially in that scene when Maroon is shot. After Doom shoots him, his reflection is perfectly overlaid on that poster of the pistol packing possum. A pretty unknown fan theory, but I think a pretty great one, and why there would be reference to this cartoon character. And it's never mentioned in the movie where every other cartoon we see is sort of brought to life and displayed. And I think that's because Judge Doom is actually that cartoon. Okay, next fan theory, Beetlejuice isn't actually dead. The crazy thing about Beetlejuice, if you haven't seen this movie in a while, is how little he's actually in his own movie. Watch this the next time you're watching it. He's barely on screen for 20 minutes in the whole thing. So in this theory, we are led to believe that he isn't dead. He isn't even a ghost. This gets a little sixth sense-ish here, but the most obvious way to explain this is by the end of the movie. When Beetlejuice gets eaten by the sandworm, he ends up in the waiting room for the afterlife. This wouldn't make sense as if he's already dead, there would have already been a transition to the afterlife and it's because Beetlejuice is actually a real man and not a ghost. If he was truly dead the way Adam and Barbara are, he would just have to draw a door on the wall to get to the great beyond the way they do. They are also never forced to sit in the waiting room. We can conclude that Beetlejuice does die in the end and is transitioning to the afterlife. So the only logical conclusion from these hints is that he was never dead throughout the rest of the movie. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days, so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
Okay, the next one is about the Karate Kid. The theory here is that Daniel is the real bully in the movie. And this has been given a little more weight with the release of the Cobra Kai series. So we always think of Daniel as the hero in Karate Kid, which he obviously is, but he is a bit of a kind of d-bag in this movie too he is the one who is most often aggressive and he is sometimes the bully you can change the way you perceive this movie by considering that johnny lawrence is actually the good guy and it does it transforms the whole thing he starts out as a jerk but he is the one taking the steps to improve himself he has more of a positive trajectory than Daniel, who stays the same throughout the movie. He doesn't have his journey. He doesn't have any growth, which the real protagonist should. So it, it really alters the way you see this thing. And, and maybe that was the intent um, to show that, you know, sometimes the person in the forefront isn't actually the hero. It's the guy behind the scenes who's making the progress and doing the work. It, when you look at it from this perspective, it completely changes the entire movie. Next theory I have to touch on, and I mentioned it at the start, is basically every single thing in The Shining. So we can't ignore this 80s movie that redefined what the fan theory could be. And But I'm not going to fully go into it for a few reasons. First, we'd be here for 832 years. And second, I did an entire show all about this, if you want to go back and check that out. So, But just having to look at some of the main ones, the main theories around... I mean, there's that entire uh, documentary just about this as well. So some of the top themes in The Shining are, of course, that it's about the faked moon landing, that Jack was actually um, harmful to Danny... There's one a re, a, one that I've liked a lot is that Wendy is actually imagining the entire thing. This is not happening. And the movie is actually from her perspective. If you go back and watch it now, it, that one totally changes the whole thing. Then the Overlook Hotel represents the plight of the Native American. Uh, the hotel is actually alive and controlling Jack. Danny is the one that let Jack out of the locked pantry. Um, and that he's actually more involved than you think. There's an interesting shot, you know, so Jack is locked in the pantry, and then, you know, he's banging on the door and whatever. In the background, you can see it, is a box of frosted flakes with Tony the tiger on it. And, of course, Tony being the imaginary, imaginary friend of Danny, and that's supposedly a hint that, you know, Danny or Tony through Danny is the one that let him out. Then, you know, the hotel represents the evil that exists deep in the heart of mankind. Then there's uh, the, the theme of the movies about the Holocaust. Um, also, again, everything that happened was a figment of their imagination, and that reveals the power of the mind. I mean, yeah, you'll have to just go listen to that episode or go online and spend the next 12 years looking at all the crazy theories of this movie. Okay, here's one I hadn't really thought about or known um, until I looked into it, and it's from Greece, and that Sandy dies at the beginning of Greece. So the whole movie seems to be set in reality. So why in the end, out of nowhere, do Danny and Sandy drive up into heaven when the movie finishes? I always thought this was such a bizarre and surreal ending to like this sort of typical high school movie. And maybe they were really going to heaven. At the start of the movie, during the Summer Nights song, we hear that Danny had saved Sandy's life at the beach because she nearly drowned. So what about the fact that maybe she did drown? The telling of the Rydale High story could have just been Sandy's subconscious working before she actually 
passes on. It would explain some of the other maybe more heavenly scenes like the beauty school dropout. But then she finally succumbs and that's when we see her ascend into heaven on a car. Yeah, even as a kid, I always thought this was bizarre and that was uh, an interesting theory of seeing pop up. Okay, next one. Most people have seen this one, and it's that E.T. is a Jedi. Super common. um, Seems to be factual now. It seems to be proper canon. In in E.T., when they're going out trick-or-treating and he's dressed as the ghost, covered with the sheet, we see him drawn to a Yoda costume when they're out. E.T. obviously recognizes a fellow Jedi and is immediately drawn to him. There are no other costumes that grab his attention. And we see more of this because there's a race of ETs that exist now in the Star Wars universe. And this is in The Phantom Menace in that big galactic Senate scene, you know, when they're on all those pods in that giant sort of arena thing. And I, I'm sure you've probably seen this. If not, there is this one of the pod has several different ETs in this little sort of capsule thing. So we have to think that, you know, ET does exist in the Star Wars universe. E.T. is technically considered an Azogian, A-S-O-G-I-A-N. I think that's what they refer to his sort of species or whatever. And that is because, you know, remember, he can move things around with his mind, and that's exactly how the Force works. So we have to think that E.T. is actually a Jedi. Okay, here's another interesting one that's changed the movie for me too, and it's in Labyrinth. And that theory is that all the goblins in Labyrinth used to be babies. So you remember all those small little goblin heads that we see in the movie? Those are the former babies. And this would explain why the Goblin King is trying to steal a human baby. He is trying to build up an army and get all the resources he can. The other interesting thing is he has a backstory, apparently. He wanted to marry a girl named Sarah, like way, way, way back, but her parents wouldn't allow it. He creates a kingdom then waiting for her, but then she eventually grows too old and dies. He never gets over this and tries to find a replacement. It's kind of like the Dracula story but with more eyeliner with David Bowie. So now he is scouring the world for someone to replace her. This is taking place over centuries. Over those centuries, he has found dark-haired Sarahs and tried to get them to his kingdom. The way he does this is by stealing their babies or their very young siblings. They then have to get to his kingdom to rescue them. All of the goblins represent the Sarahs that either didn't make it or weren't the right one for him. And the siblings or the kids or whatever. Each of those past Sarahs has failed in some way, and Jennifer Connelly's Sarah is believed to be the true one for him. The maze, the labyrinth, was built to keep the Sarahs in longer so he could figure out if they could serve as a replacement. And that's a crazy one, but Labyrinth is a nutty movie if you haven't seen it for a while. It's pretty dark and very weird, and looking at this makes complete sense when you watch the movie. And we'll finish on Ferris Bueller. And the theory here is that Ferris Bueller is not even real. And this is the fan theory that's probably been around the longest. This theory predates the internet. It's basically Ferris Bueller is a figment of Cameron's imagination. This has a a lot of people have connected this to sort of Fight Club. And, And then there's another idea that these films both exist in the same universe, which is kind of interesting. 
So the idea, the entire wacky filled day off actually never happens. The whole day and Ferris himself are just thought up in the mind of Cameron while he's sick in bed. It's almost considered like a fever dream or some sort of hallucination. The idea is that Sloan is real, but this is the only way that Cameron can have any interaction with her. It goes a bit further in the idea that Ferris is actually an extension of Cameron's personality or more of a, a, a dream scenario personality. Ferris is everything that Cameron wished he could be. Ferris is bold. He's confident. He's adventurous. He can easily talk to a girl like Sloane. This whole like day off is Cameron imagining he's cool enough um, to be adventurous and to be confident and bold and also not be afraid to talk to Sloane. Again, go back and watch. When you watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off Now with this perspective, again, it's a completely different movie. And I think this theory, or however you intend it, is meant to resonate with all of us. Cameron is who we really are, and we all aspire to be Ferris. We all struggle with our personal identity, and that's reflected in the character of Cameron. And we witness this when Cameron says Ferris can do anything. These are all his desires sort of being manifested in this character he's imagining. He's sort of creating this ideal version of himself and the person who can do everything. And that's Ferris. Ferris is that voice in our head. And it's why he's always talking to the camera. Ferris also seems to know what's going on in Cameron's mind. And again, these things where you're like, yeah, that actually makes sense now when you look back. Like in the scene when Cameron is in bed, he mumbles out loud that he's dying. Soon after, Ferris phones up and says, you're not dying. There's obviously no way Ferris could know that. And then it's just other things. Like Ferris knows that Cameron is sitting in his car trying to decide if he should come over. The two are inextricably linked because they both exist in one mind. And of all the different fan theories, I'd say this one seems straight up legitimate um, with just the tone and the structure of the movie and now looking back on it. So go watch it again from this perspective if you hadn't already heard this theory or watched it with this viewpoint. It's one of those movies like, I don't know if you've ever seen the play Wicked and then gone back and watched The Wizard of Oz, how now you're seeing the real perspective of what's happening with the Wicked Witch and who she really is. And the movie is completely transformed. And that's why I love these fan theories because we've seen all these movies dozens of times and we know everything about it. And now to get something new out of it, that's what I love, especially, you know, like even with a good um, prequels or reimagining anything that makes you appreciate the original movie, I'm all for. So some, again, some of these theories are just way out of left field and, obviously might not buy into them. But again, some can really transform what you originally know. Okay, so I'll wind it down here. Um, yeah, I, again, I just like these because movies that I've, you know, maybe not appreciated anymore or just sort of dismissed a little have been kind of transformed. And I just, I love getting that new appreciation, especially Ferris Bueller and Labyrinth. The Labyrinth one really stuck in. I mean, it's right now available, as the last I checked on Disney Plus, if you haven't seen it for a while. And I, that one just really altered the movie, which, you know, I've seen so many times, I probably wasn't going to watch again for a long time anyway. And now it's sort of motivated you to see it in this new light. So that's it for 
this show. If you want to shut it off now, that's great. But I just wanted to finish with uh, talking about supporting a show like this, and that's through patreon.com, which is the platform to support small independent shows against these, you know, huge podcast networks and celebrities and podcasts run by corporations and everything like that. And with Patreon, it's just a way for like a few dollars a month to support these smaller independent shows and then get some bonus audio content at the same time. So with mine, there's a few different tiers and at each different tier, there's different rewards and stuff. And say at the Boba Fett level I've got, that gives you access to the Everything 80s Movie Club, where I review all different sorts of movies, good ones, bad ones over there just for Patreon. So like I recently did Howard the Duck. I've done, I did Beetlejuice there. I've done like movies like Wall Street, like just a, a good random assortment. So if you just want to learn more interested in supporting a small show like this, you can go to patreon.com slash 80. So P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash 80S or wherever you're listening, there should be a link that'll take you there. But I appreciate you just taking the time to listen to this show. And, or even if this is the first episode you're listening to, I know there's a million podcasts out there. So the fact that you're like actually taking the time and opening this up and pressing play and spending the time here means a lot. So that's it for me, but I'll be back with a new show soon. Don't you dare miss it.